Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. Defense cooperation is central to the India-US strategic partnership and it has served as a key enabler for stronger collaboration at the multilateral level. While defense ties between the two countries have gone from strength to strength over the last two decades, defense industrial cooperation has notably failed to take off thus far. However, of late, the two countries have made a renewed push towards furthering defense industrial cooperation. They released a roadmap in June this year and Prime Minister Modi's recent state visit to the US has given the process further emphasis in this episode of interpreting india we will discuss india us defense industrial cooperation specifically what is the scope of defense industrial cooperation between the two countries why have past efforts produced suboptimal results what is the significance of the newly launched india us defense acceleration ecosystem and what are the likely obstacles to furthering defense industrial cooperation between the two countries joining us today to discuss this topic is dr samir lalwani Samir is a senior expert on South Asia at the US Institute of Peace. He is also a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. His research interests include nuclear deterrence, interstate travelry, alliances, crisis behavior, counterinsurgency, and Indo-Pacific security. Samir has been widely published in academic journals and the print media alike. He was the editor of the book Investigating Crises: South Asia's Lessons, Evolving Dynamics, and Trajectories. which was published by the Simpson Center in 2018. Samir, welcome to Interpreting India. Thanks for having me on the show. So if I could begin with asking you a broad question about the importance of defense industrial cooperation within the India-US strategic partnership. I think this is especially important to ask because while Washington has been keen to build out its strategic partnership with New Delhi and engage in defense trade, it has so far been reluctant to transfer key technologies to build up India's defense industrial base. but this seems to have changed over the last few months. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think this is it's clearer now to US government and policy makers uh how important this is to India as part of a as part and parcel of a strategic partnership uh between the two countries. And so um it's taken some time I think for for the US to understand sort of the unique interests of India which are are distinct from a lot of US partners and allies. uh and then start to navigate its own um system uh bureaucratic and regulatory system uh which was never designed to actively share and partner in the same way uh and so it, it's been a learning process i think i think for the united states but uh, clearly the united states has signaled its interest in india's defense industrial capacity right it's it's central to india's ability to defend and deter against adversaries including uh potentially china uh i think the us sees this as a marker or a currency of trust between the two countries and that's something that uh india has been asking for um it's a demonstration of its, its reliability and its investment in india's growth and future uh and then i think the third thing that maybe is sort of underappreciated but it is a bet on india's future science and technology innovation ecosystem uh and 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 a bet that the us system of science and technology will um benefit tremendously from greater integration not just in terms of uh defense industrial production but basic science uh and on scaling all the way up to technology developments 
Right. I think you summed it up really well. In June this year, India and the US released a roadmap for defense industrial cooperation. Could you break down for our listeners what this roadmap entails and what its significance is? Sure. So I think at its core, the purpose of this roadmap is to support greater integration of supply chains uh, and greater co-development and co-production, as, as India has been uh, calling for, uh, co-development and co-production uh, co of defense technologies. And that can be um, anything from munitions to sensors uh, to maybe a more fully integrated uh, platforms, ultimately. Um, but it's, it's sort of that shared building process uh, from design to, uh, uh, to sort of development and prototyping to uh, commercialization and production. Um, and I think that the mechanisms essentially that it's putting on the table are uh, threefold. Uh, I mean, like the, what, what are sort of the sort of the core components of innovation? It's uh, breaking down information silos and information asymmetries. So just sort of becoming more aware of each other's systems for even the private sector to uh, work well together. Uh, it's addressing some of the regulatory challenges. And that doesn't mean sort of um, bulldozing them entirely because the regulatory structures are in place in both countries uh, to, to serve national interests, but uh, helping to navigate and smooth over some of the, 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 so the regulatory challenges that may be adverse to both countries' interests. And that means, you know, timelines for licensing uh, or uh, prohibitions that maybe are not uh, as advantageous today as they were, um, you know, during the Cold War in previous years. Um, and then the third is uh, capital formation and sort of identifying, you know, whether it's uh, seed funding through um, existing government programs, and both countries have their own uh, small business and technology development funds, uh, scaling up to uh, you know more advanced or programs of record. Uh, but also in the private sector, there's a lot of venture capital that uh, is interested in dual use technology. So I think it's trying to identify all those pieces and uh, reduce the 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 information gaps and 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 obstacles between them, and essentially create the, the conditions for, for innovation. But ultimately, that will still depend on um, the private sector to, to, to take it from there. But I think it's, it's really staging. Um, it's, it's the right staging ground for it. And just to mention, this is not the first time that India and the U.S. are attempting to bolster defense industrial cooperation. In 2012, the two countries began the Defense Technology and Trade Initiative, or DTTI, but little has come of it. DDTI sought to cut through the bureaucratic red tape to promote the exchange of military technologies and create opportunities for the co-development and co-production of defense systems. Many of the same aims that the current roadmap has. But unfortunately, none of the projects identified under the initiative ever materialized. If you could tell us what eventually led to the DTTI's suboptimal performance and what can we learn from its shortcomings? That's a great question. I think I think um, articles or at least or even books need to be written on this um, because there's probably a lot to unpack. And I don't think anyone sort of is a central repository for this information or, or this assessment of DTTI. But I've spent some time talking to people, at least in the U.S. government side, who uh, stewarded it uh, and and oversaw parts of it for periods of time. And so I, I've come away with sort of my own conclusions. I, they, they may not be objectively uh, the, the, the most comprehensive or, or correct ones, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. So I think at, at its core, DTTI was a product of 
uh, mismatched and maybe compound expectations. Uh, and it comes out of the name itself, right? U.S.-India Defense Technology and Trade Initiative. And as I understand, there was even a dispute as to whether this is a technology initiative or whether it was a trade initiative and which one should be foregrounded over the other. Uh, and so even like the order of technology and trade or trade and technology was, was, a, was a bit of a dispute, right? And that, that sort of speaks to a larger challenge, which is we had two defense systems, um, both, you know, know, ministries of defense, uh, defense bureaucracies, agencies, uh, but also ecosystems that were just very unused to dealing with each other. And so there was a lot of feeling each other out and figuring out how the other side works and operates and where sort of the the centers of of power and decision making are and where the you know the resources are uh, so there was a lot of i think um, learning that needed to take place that was a necessary uh, process maybe maybe even sort of a process of of failure but learning through uh, failure at times right so uh, we should speak to some of the successes of, of DTTI, for, uh, first of all, because it, it, it did uh, produce some things. Uh, so number one is I think it helped move along the foundational agreements between the U.S. and India. And these foundational agreements on uh, shared logistics, uh, on communications and geospatial uh, sharing, these are frameworks. These are legal frameworks for what is and is not possible. They're a floor. They're not a ceiling. Um, and I think for the U.S. government, because we're a highly legalized um, bureaucracy and, 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 and state, uh, for the U S government to do anything, it needs legal frameworks for all this stuff. And, and I think it would took a while for, uh, the U S and India to come to agreement that the, the legal framework was not a requ- It was not a, it was not a requirement. It was not a condition. It was not a constraint. It was simply uh, a facilitator of, of future, uh, sharing of information and intelligence and uh, reciprocal logistics. So, so I think that 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 process was moved along by DTTI. I think we learned about each other's systems. We learned from some some failed efforts. There were a lot of working groups on air, aircraft uh, air, um, aircraft carrier technology and jet engine technology, and some smaller pilot projects on. Um, uh, you know, uh, tactical drones and uh, roll-on, roll-off kits, and and nothing nothing was produced from that, but a lot of discussions were had that helped each other learn about our systems and what was possible. I think ultimately there was an agreement signed at an air launched UAV uh, program that I think is still in the prototyping phase where both um, the Air Force uh, Research Labs and, and DRDO are working on uh, their own respective sort of parts of it and eventually going to prototype and um, maybe aim for some sort of commercialization of this in the future. But um, but that was kind of like the only actual concrete project that was agreed upon and concluded. Um, and that was, and so so that I think, again, goes back to this mismatch, mismatch expectations, right? Like the United States thought that part of this mechanism was to facilitate greater foreign military sales. And it was the trade part of, of DTTI. And I think... Uh, the U.S. government sincerely thought this was about sharing technology, but its understanding of what sharing technology means to India was was different from India's. Right, so the way the U.S. thinks of sharing technology traditionally with our partners and allies is 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 the uh, freedom to sell really complex and sensitive platforms like an F thirty five or uh, a Patriot three uh, missile battery or uh, Thad uh, missile defense system theater m- missile defense system. And for India, sharing technology did not mean uh, the ability just to purchase something, but to actually build something uh, either together or uh, as sort of a, in terms of a licensed production where it could learn 
from that process and iterate off of it and develop and indigenize its own capacities. And those are very different expectations of what, what technology sharing meant. Um, and in some ways it was also a misunderstanding of like, you know, what the incentive structures were for the United States. I mean, a lot of this technology is owned by private companies, the intellectual property is owned by private companies. So why would a private company give up the most valuable resource it has for free to another country or at such a discount? Um, and that was something that I think, uh, the Indian government struggled with and Indian government and, uh, DPSUs and DRDO struggled with uh, offering a value proposition that was appealing to uh, U.S. private sector industry and primes, uh, and so that was. So I think that was sort of a, a challenge on on the trade and technology sharing side. Um, you know, there were some, I think, some bureaucratic mismatches as well. For example, the, the U.S. government, in an effort to really move this along, set up something called the India Rapid Reaction Cell within the, the Pentagon, uh, which was meant to essentially uh, accelerate these uh, these bureaucratic processes. Uh, and the expectation was that India would set a, a similar one up in the Ministry of Defense, and I, I think that never happened. And so uh, there was some asymmetries in our bureaucratic processes as well. But maybe the the, the biggest thing that was missing from this whole uh, effort was there wasn't a, a sort of a really important propellant. And by that, I mean uh, an urgent challenge that warranted us to use political efforts to overcome uh, default bureaucratic processes. Um, innovations, innovation is disruptive. Innovation ecosystems for them to operate require some disruption and some large pushes at the top from political leadership. And they often don't happen uh, in the absence of a of a, of a challenging security environment, um, because under sort of status quo conditions, uh, distributional politics rules uh, and 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 uh, outbids any disruptive innovation efforts. So uh, in this case, I think I think the lack of uh, of a China threat early in in, in 2012, or, or sort of the urgency of the China threat, was not nearly as pronounced uh, a decade ago as it is today. And because of that. Uh, and because rather that, that China has become sort of this uh, much larger challenge for both countries, I think it has uh, propelled both sides to uh, take significant political efforts to overcome their default processes, uh, their default sort of bureaucratic processes and work together better. Uh, so there's a sense of urgency at, at stake today. And do you also think there was a question of Indian capacity uh, when it came to implementing some of the projects under DTTI? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's there's two types of capacity we can break it down into. One is um, uh, bureaucratic throughput, and then the other is uh, you know la- like engineering labs and and um, and defense production facilities. I think, I think maybe on both, there's maybe some differences in, in, in what the U S would expect, but I think the bigger challenge was the bureaucratic throughput. I think at some, at some level, Indian labs are, are pretty good at developing, uh, technologies and prototypes and then producing them. Um, they are sort of modeled a lot off sort of the Soviet system. And I think there's a lot of sort of Soviet influence in, in the Indian defense technology ecosystem, but that's fine. The Soviets built some very capable technologies, uh, but I think it was really on the the bureaucratic throughput side that was a challenge, at least for the United States. Uh, and it's still, I think, to some degree, is a challenge today. Sometimes you you see that there's um, in a meeting between the Pentagon and the Ministry of Defense, there's uh, like almost like a five to one ratio of of U.S. Um, uh, action officers or, or, you know, uh, sort of grunt level decision uh, uh, officers uh, making decisions and trying to move 
paperwork and and make uh, choices and bureaucratic uh, uh, systems move along. And on the Indian side, there is maybe one, uh, and so there's a there's a, just a, a lack of capacity, but then also maybe a lack of decisional autonomy, right? And I think that's where uh, there's a difference in our systems, where I think a, a lot action officers at the lowest level, like a 25 year old working in the Pentagon, has some authority to make some some choices, not necessarily to to to, to uh, press go on a system, but to make a decision to move move a, a file up up the up the chain and make a decision to have a conversation and and uh, report back on something. And sometimes that doesn't seem to be the same level of uh, empowerment uh, in in the Indian MOD. But but I think things are changing, right? I think things are uh, starting to move along. But that that to me, I think maybe was the the bigger capacity problem than the uh, research and development technology prototyping side. Right. Uh, coming to some successes uh, when we talk about defense industrial uh, cooperation. Um, so during Prime Minister Modi's recent state visit, uh, General Electric and Hindustan Aeronautics Limited signed a deal to produce fighter engines in India. Uh, the GE414 jet engine that will be manufactured under the agreement will power the Tejas Mark II, which is an indigenous fighter currently being developed in India. Uh, the two countries have described the GE deal as trailblazing, um, and we'll also see a greater transfer of U.S. jet engine technology than ever before, uh, around 80% by value, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but there are also critics, and they have pointed out that the GE414 is actually technology from the 1980s, and it's not really something to celebrate about. How do you view the GE engine deal? Okay, so I think there's several... Um, several benefits to, to the GE deal. So first of all, I think it's, it's a pretty, it's a very significant deal, right? This is something that number one, India has been asking of the United States for over a decade, right? Jet engine technology, as I mentioned, was part of one of the original working groups um, in DTTI. And I know that there was a deal sort of on the table, uh, even, even, um, you know, over the past decade uh, that India uh, balked at because it, it ostensibly was not enough technology transfer. And we can get into like, you know, what technology transfer means and what these percentages are. Um, but look, at the end of the day, the United States did what India asked and came and, and delivered sort of even more than what was um, what was possible even five years ago. So it's a, it's, a, it's a stepwise sort of change in what's being offered. There's clear military utility to, to the system, right? Even if it was simply just a GE engine being sold to, um, to India, not produced in India, uh, you would have essentially a better powered fighter aircraft than, than Chinese have. And that's very important, right? It's, a, it's important for uh, defense of, of the LAC and defense of sort of Indian borders, especially when you're dealing with China that can always beat you in quantity. And so you really need to have some sort of asymmetric advantage, and that's going to be the quality of your engines and allow for sort of greater thrust and duration um, and and uh, and sustainment over over its life cycle as well. So there's clearly a military advantage to having these engines power the Tejas too, but also maybe the AMCA in the future. The second is that I think for the United States, this was a really costly political signal, right? For the longest time, the U.S. would sort of punt on this and say, look, this is industry decision. This is not our decision. Uh, we have our regulatory processes in place, just like, you know, um, except these are our constraints. Uh, and in this case, the administration sort of went to great efforts, arguably Herculean efforts, to overcome all the obstacles that it once said prohibited it or, it, or disabled it from providing this deal or sort of facilitating this deal. 
And I think that meant, you know, leaning on uh, the regulatory permissions community um, to, and pushing them really hard, pushing GE even as well, uh, and and clearing the way for this deal to be possible. And again, I think it speaks to sort of the, the, the threat environment that we're in, that I think China is a much more concerning challenge for the United States and for India today than it was even um, five or 10 years ago. And so uh, because of that, there's a sense of urgency and a desire to overcome as I said, bureaucratic default decisions, which tend to sort of default towards no rather than yes. Uh, and so I think that that costly signal should not be ignored, right? This was, this is, it is not simply about the deal itself, but what the US is willing to do and how much it values the partnership with India. Uh, so those things I think are, are important to, um, to value on their own, but then we can, let's talk about the technology sharing element of this. Um, so yeah, 1980s technology and only 80% of the value being shared. Sometimes I miss, I don't really know what, what we mean when we're, what the denominator is when we say uh, 8% of technology is being shared uh, with the country. Is it, it, I think you, you said value. Uh, sometimes this could be like sort of the number of components, even how you value certain components uh, may not just be about pricing, but about exclusivity or the difficulty of producing something. Um, and in this case, I think that, uh, I think that what, what's really advantage uh, is, is an advantage here is that the two countries are going to build complex technologies together. Thus far, there are U.S. defense companies that are building things in India, but they are not the most complex systems. They might be, um, you know, uh, uh, fuselages or empennages, um, but they're but they're not like as complex as an engine. And the way the technology, as I understand, the way the technology is shared between partners or between countries or between ecosystems is not by handing over blueprints and it's not by handing over sort of secret source codes. It's by building things together because so much of technology is tacit knowledge and organizational knowledge. And those two things do not get transmitted on paper or in source code. Those things get transmitted through human interaction and co-production and building things where two engineers are working side by side and saying, I made this decision because of this, this reason. And the other engineer can sort of understand uh, the craft knowledge behind that, not simply um, a, uh, an algorithm or, or a computation of some sort. And that's, that's the secret sauce, as I understand, for technology sharing. And the U.S. and India have never done that in, in such a complex system before. There is an example where I, I would say I would suggest that these critics go take a look at Turkey's aerospace, uh, aerospace uh, industry. Uh, because that's a case where Turkey was building F-16s for quite a while um, as a licensed production of, 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 of uh, U.S. F-16s for uh, because Turkey is part of the, the NATO alliance. Um, and over the course of producing this licensed production of, of these licensed um, F-16s, it developed its own aerospace industry in a way that it was able to produce some fairly advanced and complex systems, including the TB2, which is now sold around the world and sort of highly coveted. Uh, as a fairly advanced uh, but low-cost um, uh, armed drone. So uh, I think that's a, an example that these critics should look to and then look back to sort of what, what India got out of licensed production of uh, Russian fighters over the last 60 years. Um, if, if it was such a great relationship, which oftentimes I think a lot of these critics of the, of, of the USA defense uh, cooperation say that, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're not offering nearly as much technology as the Russians did. Well, where was India today after after 60 years of technology sharing with the Russians? It's fairly limited. And even when 
even when there was technology sharing, I think the, the example that's often offered is the BrahMos missile program. Just remember where that started. That started with essentially um, uh, pure license production by importing all the subcomponents from Russia. And over time, India indigenized them piece by piece, uh, but still hasn't indigenized everything, right? There's still the, the, the ramjet propulsion system is not indigenized by India. And so um, I, I think that that's sort of, if, if that's a model, you can, it, it suggests that you can scale from um, producing some components and importing some of it and eventually scaling up to where you're able to produce a lot more of the system and of, of, of the value chain of that uh, system and ultimately um, iterate it on, on it for yourself, uh, export it at some point, uh, certainly be able to uh, maintain, repair and overhaul it over time. So uh, I think there's a lot of technology sharing that's going to happen in this deal. And there, and it's just a, it's just the beginning of a lot more. So Samir, you said this is just the beginning. Do you think the GE deal sets a precedent for the future of uh, transfer of technology to India? I certainly think it sets a precedent for for more cooperation, more sharing, um, which which I think again will will involve transfer of technologies and co development of of new technologies. So, like at, at in some areas, like in in some of the more emerging and frontier technologies, I think we're going to be co co developing uh, and innovating together. Uh, whether it's sort of an artificial intelligence or, or uh, quantum computing or um, uh, synthetic biology. Uh, and I think that that sort of that, that basic science collaboration is also an important part or a foundation for future technology cooperation. But, you know, you're already seeing it in some other systems that are being developed. So as part of the, the uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi's state visit to the United States, another announcement was the purchase of the MQ-9 Sea Guardian um, uh, UAV. And in that case, uh, as, as I've seen reported, um, that system, while it's, while it's produced and assembled by General Atomics, is going to source a lot of Indian subcomponents and contributions. So I believe that uh, Bharat Forge is going to do some actual material production. I think HAL is supposed to, uh, uh, will have a, a, an agreement to do maintenance, repair, and overhaul. And there are two Indian startups that are producing um, pretty advanced subcomponents uh, that will be built into uh, future MQ-9s. So, so it's already starting to happen in other systems, and I expect it'll only grow over time. I, I'm not sure we're going to see sort of another uh, GE engine deal like like this again uh, immediately. But the point of this effort was essentially to create an umbrella, uh, to have a really big and um, recognizable top-down decision and, and top-down uh, uh effort that that had some sizzle to it uh and I, I'll, I'll liken it to maybe what, what what's happening with AUKUS uh AUKUS has two components that's pillar one which is the nuclear submarine component uh and pillar two is all the other uh, possible sort of avenues of collaboration on emerging technology over the next 10-15 years and while pillar one is the recognizable discernible physical object of a, of a nuclear submarine and a pretty advanced technology um, what people are really excited about in Australia and, and UK as well is, is really the pillar two stuff. And I think that's what, what this GE deal has done is it's opened the door to a lot of other kinds of bottom up collaboration, which arguably in the long run are going to be much more important than, than a jet engine. I actually want to ask you a question about the role of the Indian defense private sector in further collaboration between the U S and India. 
Um, so you've already mentioned that American defense companies are producing subcomponents in India. Could you speak more um, to what the scope of the defense private sector in India is to further collaboration between the two countries? I think that uh, the parts of the Indian defense private sector that I'm aware of are more in the startup ecosystem. So I've spent some time in Bangalore and talked to companies in Hyderabad. And I think they're doing some really exciting stuff because what I think they're doing is actual innovation, right? These are um, young entrepreneurs who are coming out of uh, universities and technical institutes with some really cutting edge ideas and trying to produce uh, new technologies and and um, and new prototypes and then refine them, uh, make them sort of more commercially viable and ultimately scale and produce them and, and sell them um, to other, uh, you know, uh, other sort of major defense uh, um, manufacturers uh, or, or to um, to militaries, uh, you know, as well. And that's, I think, is, is really exciting. There's certainly a, not, a number of major players in the Indian defense private sector, uh, but I think the action is really at the at the startup and small to medium enterprise level because I think that's where true innovation is taking place, uh, and and there's a lot of opportunity to to um, to scale that and to connect that with um, uh, supply chains around the world. Right. Um, coming back to sort of broader cooperation uh, between the two countries, um, so the defense. Uh, Industrial Roadmap also identifies other areas where um, India and the U.S. can undertake co-development and co-production of defense systems. Um, for instance, unmanned systems or drones, munitions, and armored fighting vehicles. What do you think are some of the other areas, apart from jet engines, that we can expect the two countries to cooperate in the short term? All of these are oriented around uh, a need that I think the U.S. and India sense sense is a deficit, sort of in both systems. Uh, but you know, in India, for example, I mean, these are all systems that would be critical in the defense of the LAC, uh, and so they're being derived out of a perceived mission that the Indian military and Indian Army, in particular, uh, will have and will need. Uh, but I think another area that you didn't mention, but is it's going to be really important to both countries, is. Um, uh, undersea domain awareness. Uh, so, so the ability to uh, detect movements um, under this, uh, the surface of the sea, and and you know really tracking submarines, some of submarines and other other submersibles, other um, uh, you know unmanned uh, systems that sort of be operating under the sea as well. Uh, because I think that's an area where where we see China making sort of significant advances. It's a, it's always been. Uh, a challenging environment, and it's one where uh, both maritime powers have a vested interest in having uh, greater domain awareness and and a greater advantage. Again, because uh, if you can't win in quantity, you need to be able to detect better, right? There's a, there's a essentially sort of a hider finder uh, challenge, and you need to be able to at least be able to detect if if you can't. Uh, overwhelming numbers. And in that case, I think that's where the U.S. India will have sort of uh, tremendous interest to collaborate. And that might be in undersea unmanned systems. Um, it might be in uh, different kinds of uh, surface or subsurface sensors. Uh, uh, I've even thought that there's a, an opportunity, right, for the two countries to cooperate on sono buoys, because uh, as you have more peacetime uh, anti-submarine warfare uh, operations taking place where you're just trying to track submarines and keep abreast of, of all the movements under the sea. You're deploying lots and lots of sonobuoys to track 
these vessels. And um, there has been in the past shortages of sauna buoys in, in, the, uh, in the global market. And so I think this is an area where it's ripe for uh, a cooperation between the two countries. And there, there are ways in which India could produce this at scale at, at a cost that would be, I think, fairly advantageous. And again, serve this distinct mission of, of undersea domain awareness. So um, I think that's, that's another particular area I'd pay attention to. Coming to Defense Innovation Corporation, which we've already touched on um, during this podcast, last month, the two countries also launched the India-US Defense Acceleration Ecosystem, or Indosex, which is a bridge to connect the two countries' defense innovation ecosystems. Could you highlight for our listeners the significance of such a defense innovation bridge and why it is important for both countries to connect their startup ecosystems? Yeah, I think this is this is a really important. This is the part. This is the pillar two process that I alluded to. It's the uh, in my mind is like the equivalent of pillar two of AUKUS, because this is the bottom up effort to stitch together um, the sources of innovation in in both countries. Uh, and in the case of of India, you have this great um, versioning of a bunch of startup. Uh, uh, companies in, in aerospace and, and defense um, and, and artificial intelligence and, um, uh, and advanced sensing. And all these companies, I think, are looking for uh, partners and looking for markets. And I think the, the brilliance of Indus, Indus X is identifying uh, ways in which to uh, partner with those uh, with this 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 entire new ecosystem, and so I think there are a number of things that have been announced in um, in the Indus X process. So one of them is a joint challenge. Right, challenges are essentially ways for uh, uh, major companies and and countries and 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 services to uh, scout new technologies, uh, to identify them, and then to partner with them and partner 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 with the companies and help them develop those technologies. So there'll be probably sort of a, an engineering side to the development, but then also a business development process as well uh, to make them commercially viable. Um, I think what they're looking to do is also do greater. Um, foreign comparative testing. So again, this is an opportunity where like Indian companies will be able to uh, have their prototypes tested in uh, fairly advanced conditions to see if they, you know, they sort of meet certain standards and they can be certified, verified. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, an opportunity to sell technology, but then also um, refine it. And, and uh, I think sort of testing facilities, as I understand, are, are, are in short supply in India. Uh, and so this would be another way for the U.S. to sort of essentially lend spare capacity to the Indian um, startup defense ecosystem. Uh, Mentor-protege agreements are, are being discussed pretty actively. I think there's not like a formal decision yet on this, but uh, this is how a lot of small companies in the United States uh, uh, develop and, and sort of improve is to partner with a larger prime um, where they can, they, they might want to acquire the technology. They want to be purchased, purchase that technology or purchase, um, uh, you know, uh, make sales purchases. And then in the process of doing so, help them refine and improve the technology and make it compatible with a, with a, a major system that, that prime is developing. Um, so that, that mentorship process, as I understand talking to uh, a number of companies is, is very important. And again, it's, it's on the technical side, but it's also on the business side, uh, and just navigating even, even the regulatory side as well, navigating, um, some of the complex processes of the legal processes you have to, to navigate in order to sell to a foreign, um, 
for an entity uh, to sort of collaborate together to share technology information um, between two foreign entities. So I think this, this framework is really helping to, again, break down the information silos, clear, clear back some of the regulatory brush, uh, and then identify where there are sort of sources of capital and help, help venture capital identify uh, some good prospects so they can put money and resources into uh, developing these, these companies and these technologies. And uh, do you think there are any quick wins that the two countries can work on in the short term to keep the momentum going? Um, you know, I think the joint challenge process uh, will probably be a, a quick win. Uh, and I don't think it'll be quick, but I think it'll be a win when it happens, because I think that's where you'll start to see um, both the Indian and U.S. sides identify what are the technologies they're most interested in, what are the domains and mission sets that they're most concerned with, and collectively identify the right companies um, or the right technologies to, uh, to meet those needs. So, so I, think, I think if we see a joint challenge, that'll be a pretty significant marker that this is, this is working. Right. And coming to my last question, um, what are the likely obstacles um, to furthering defense industrial cooperation between the two countries? So I think there are two kinds of obstacles in general that I have read in, in, in the literature on, on innovation and really in even defense innovation. I think there are two kinds of obstacles. The first is market failures. Um, and that's oftentimes when uh, that happens oftentimes when certain actors want to capture and constrain the market in certain ways uh, or, or prevent government from putting resources and capital into um, spurring that innovation. And, and that could happen, you know, on, on the, the, the U S side, if, 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 if private industry decides that it doesn't want to be sharing technologies, it doesn't want to be sort of compelled to sharing technologies. They sort of just might sort of sit out this process. Although that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that private industry is really enthused about the long-term prospects of, of sourcing from, um, India and sort of collaborating and developing um, technology in India, but it's, it's a possibility. And it's similarly a possibility that uh, that parts of the Indian public sector defense uh, industrial complex uh, might not be so happy with the private sector taking on a larger role, even though it is clearly identified by the prime minister and by political leadership as, as an important goal for India. So, so you could have some, some market failures uh, that, that, result from that. There's another set of failures that you have to be attentive to in, in innovation, which is network failures. And in this case, um, this is about the, the, as I said, a lot of it is information, but it's, it's about information and um, reducing friction uh, between STEM labor, between science, technology, you know, um, uh, and, and engineering labor, uh, entrepreneurs, research and development institutions, uh, skilling institutions, universities and technical institutions, uh, investors, both sort of international investors and, and domestic investors and capital formation, um, expertise networks, foreign, foreign exports markets. So th all these things need to be networked together for a successful innovation ecosystem to happen. And in the absence of that networking, whether because of, as I said, uh, political or regulatory obstacles or because of information um, gaps or asymmetries, uh, the, the whole enterprise could uh, not take off. And so I think there's, there's, there's going to be a sort of continuous effort um, for all these 
actors to be linked together. And accelerator programs are are essentially that um, that mixing bowl. They try to sort of source all these or, or bring all these parties together in a single place and time and and um, uh, mission or challenge in order to uh, sync them all and sync their interests all. I mean, at the end of the day, these are private actors that make decisions on their own. Uh, and so all you can do is sort of bring them together in, in, a, in an environment where they can work together, then hope that magic happens, but it often does. And we see this happen a lot in the non-defense defense sector. And so this is just a matter of um, trying to bring this into the defense space as well between our two countries. And um, so those are the challenges. I think though that we are off to a great start in terms of addressing both of them, both the market and network failure challenges. And um, and so I'm optimistic about this future. Um, great. If I can add, I'm also really optimistic about um, the future of uh, U.S.-India Defense Industrial Corporation. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.